BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Well, the pandemic isn't over. The more transmissible Delta variant now makes up the vast majority of new cases in the country and is driving a new wave of the virus, leading the CDC to issue new indoor masking rules yesterday. Shockingly, some areas of Florida and Arkansas are at or near the peaks for hospitalizations from the winter before there were vaccines available. But that's not the case here in California, and it's hard to know what to expect next. So we'll take a hard look at the numbers from here and abroad, attempt to sort out the new COVID picture, and orient you for the coming months. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. During 2020, I co-led the COVID tracking project and actually joined this show as a guest, not your host, a couple times to talk about the numbers. When we wound down the project in the spring in the post-vaccine world, I never thought that we'd see anywhere in the U.S. with severe illness numbers matching those from the worst of the pandemic before we had access to immunizations. And yet, when I scan the numbers for the past couple weeks, it's pretty clear that parts of the Southeast are experiencing a wave of the virus that is as intense as any that's been seen before. Other places like the Bay Area or New York are seeing increases in cases, but nowhere near winter levels of hospitalizations. As with each previous wave of the coronavirus, the social, political, and biological conditions have been revised, and we can't use the past as a perfect guide for the future. So today, more than 450 days into this pandemic, we're resetting here and hoping to provide some informed guidance on what the next few months could look like here, across the nation, and in the countries uh, around the world. Joining us uh, is David Wallace-Wells, deputy editor with New York Magazine, who's been following COVID closely through the months. Welcome, David. Thanks. Good to be here. And we also have Dr. Celine Gounder, an internist and infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist. She's the host and producer of the podcast American Diagnosis and Epidemic, which focus on the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Gounder. Dr. Gounder, can you hear me? 
Can you hear me? Oh, yes, we can. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> great welcome, to welcome to the show. Um, Dr. Gunder, I, I wanted to start with you. Um, you know, let's say now your family turns to you, your friends, everyone knows that you're an epidemiologist. And, and they have been, they're tired <laughs> after all these months. And they say, where are we now? Like, what's going on? I, wh- what's your response to them? Well, you know, I, I think we're in this for a while yet. I think when you have to remember when we say this is a pandemic, this is a virus that is spreading across the world. This is not just limited to the United States. And so we're in this for the long haul. It's going to be a while before people around the world have access to vaccines, before we're able to address transmission in other parts of the world. And that means that threats like the Delta variant will continue to emerge, uh, even if it's not emerging here in the United States, where we have better access to vaccines. Uh, New variants can certainly emerge elsewhere. And so we really do need to remain vigilant. And that means that what we thought worked early in the pandemic, what we knew early in the pandemic may continue to change as we learn more. And we need to learn to adapt and stay ahead of the virus rather than just be um, reactive and, and behind the curve. Yeah. I mean, one of the difficult things about the variants is, you know, when we were talking about the alpha variant, uh, B117, the one that was first identified in the UK, just to use all the different ways people may know it. Um, you know, there were a lot of infectious disease specialists in the United States, very respected ones, who thought that there would be a, a, a very large B117 wave, which then didn't arrive. Um, do you, except in certain places, let's, let's basically Michigan, um, Dr. Gounder, do you see this Delta variant as being really quite different in kind from B117 or Alpha? Well, I was one of those um, experts who really did think that B117 Alpha was going to cause a, a big surge. Um, and I think we got very lucky that we were far enough ahead in our um, vaccine rollout as compared to the UK and and parts of Europe, for example, that we were a bit better insulated from what that surge could have been. So it really was just the upper Midwest, Michigan, Minnesota, parts of Illinois, for example, that were hit really hard by by Alpha. Uh, Delta is even more infectious than Alpha. Um, It also has immune evading properties that Alpha did not. And so it is a unique threat. And there will no doubt be additional variants that emerge down the line. So we need to keep adapting our strategies, um, reevaluating the situation and and adapting. Um, I think part of the challenge is people feel like, well, this has been so long, so frustrating. Isn't this over yet? Can't we just move on? And I, trust me, I fully understand that as somebody who was working on the front lines in the hospital. But we simply can't. This is this is just not how the virus behaves. It's not there to, to be you know convenient for the rest of us. Yeah. David Wallace Wells with uh, New York Magazine. As you've been tracking the the variants, how has your thinking evolved about their importance um, in the pandemic? Well, you know, in general, I think I'm on the more optimistic end of the spectrum when it comes to Delta. And I say that for for two big reasons. The first is the one that you mentioned at the top of the show, which is that thanks to the level of vaccinations in the country, and and really even in parts of the country where mass vaccination hasn't been all that successful, we've done a relatively good job of reaching um, the most vulnerable elderly people. So we've really dramatically reduced the mortality risk of the country. 
you know, maybe by something like 90 or even 95%, uh, maybe that's a little high, but it's, you know, it's, it's a dramatic reduction in the total mortality risk of the country. And the and, second is, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. The second is if we look at, you know, the, the precedent experience of the UK and the Netherlands um, in particular, those Delta waves do seem to be breaking well before what a layman like me would have expected in the sense that, you know, there are still an enormous number of vulnerable people in each of those countries, um, even given their large, um, you know, their high levels of vaccination, even given the number of people that have been infected with the disease already, it's not like Delta had to reach every single person in the country before it, the wave um, started to decline. And the declines have actually been at least um, at the outset of those declines, quite rapid. Now, most of the virologists and epidemiologists I've spoken to about this say that this is um, quite typical, that waves of this kind do almost, you know, they, they rise and they fall um, in ways that aren't, you know, all that um, legible to people who don't really know the science all that closely. But it does suggest that we may be in the US um, you know, maybe a few weeks away from a peak of a Delta surge, which then will dissipate relatively quickly. There'll still be a lot of people, particularly in parts of the country that have low vaccination rates, who are going to get very sick and, and some who will die. And that'll be, you know, it's awful. Um, but I think that it's unlikely, given what we've seen in the UK and the Netherlands, that we're talking about a Delta surge that stretches deep into the fall and links up to the, you know, that fall winter um, seasonal effect that would make it even, even, even worse. Yeah, I mean, the counter here perhaps is that the UK is a small country with less severe variation, say, particularly in older populations, um, in vaccination rates, right? I mean, that there are some places in the US where 65 plus vaccination rates are lower than um, than we see in the UK, where they're kind of uniformly over 90 percent, yeah? Well, even the, the the American state, I mean, down to the county level, you get some more variation. And it's absolutely true that in certain small pockets of the country, um, there are a lot of really vulnerable seniors who have not yet gotten vaccines. But at the state level, you know, the, the worst um, performing state for reaching seniors with vaccination, um, I think, is Mississippi, which has reached, um, the last time I looked a few days ago, 77% of its senior population, um, which is, you know, it would be better if it was 95 or above. Um, but it strikes me as, you know, surprisingly good given the um, the sort of discourse that we have about vaccines, which is to say, you know, it may be the case that many younger and middle-aged people are really resistant, especially in certain parts of the country. But those who are most vulnerable, um, they're not all vaccinated, but they're um, they're relatively well vaccinated. And at the national level, the UK senior um, vaccination is just about equal to the U.S. We're, we're at about 90 percent. They're at about, I think, 93 percent or something like that. So, um, you know, th there's some gap there. There's some additional people that would be protected if the U.S. had the same um, vaccination rates among the elderly as the U.K. does. But it's not this enormous yawning gulf that makes us dramatically more vulnerable, at least when it comes to mortality risk. Now, there is this whole other question of whether you know, um, of exactly how worried we, sh we should be about cases and transmission, um, even in this new world where, you know, the lion's share of mortality risk has been eliminated. And that I think is a much trickier thing to think about and to navigate. We don't totally know um, how, to, how we should, you know, what the, pre what the true prevalence of long COVID is, the, the different surveys show very different results. Um, and of course, even if we don't experience long COVID, if we get sick enough to be very sick or go to the hospital, that's not a pleasant experience either. So I don't mean to say that the only 
risk factor here. The only thing we should be worrying about is, is death. Um, but I do think it's, you know, it's useful coming out of the, this year and a half long pandemic that we've been in to remind ourselves now and again, just what a better, um, more optimistic position we are in now because vaccinations have reached, um, you know, nationally, the, the White House says um, 90% of American seniors. I think that's, you know, that's pretty encouraging. Dr. Gounder, I assume that you have a, a slightly more, at least slightly more pessimistic view of, of what may happen. What's the scenario that you're expecting um, over the next uh, few weeks? Typically, can you hear me? I'm not muted. Yep. Oh, yeah, we can hear okay. you. Okay. Um, we typically see this happen in waves. Um, so it's not surprising that you would have a delta wave followed by, you know, whatever the next variant would be. And I think that's what we actually expect. If you look at what happened or is happening in, in India and in the UK, uh, Israel, other countries that have faced their Delta surge before us, uh, I agree with David, you see um, a, a pretty s- steep increase and then a steep decline. And so on that basis, if you assume that we follow that same pattern, our Delta surge uh, should really uh, last another month or you know month and a half or so. Uh, and then we should be outside of that surge. But that's not where this ends. We, we also fully anticipate there will be additional variants that emerge, that there will be new waves of uh, infection and, and cases. And we really need to be prepared for that. Um, you know, there's a saying in public health, you never make waste of a crisis. And, and this is an opportunity for us to see what our weaknesses are uh, and, and what holes need to be patched uh, before we hit the next wave whenever that comes. We're talking about the Delta variant and the resurgence of COVID cases with Dr. Celine Gounder, who's an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist and host and producer of the podcast American Diagnosis and Epidemic, as well as David Wallace-Wells, deputy editor uh, with New York Magazine. What are your questions about the Delta variant and the position that we're now in? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at... KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Delta variant and the resurgence of COVID cases with David Wallace-Wells, deputy editor at New York Magazine, as well as Dr. Celine Gounder, an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at NYU School of Medicine. Um, I want to talk about countermeasures a bit. Um, The CDC released a new mask guidance, um, and I was Ashish Jha, professor at Brown, I was looking at his sort of position, guy that I've sort of respected through uh, the pandemic, um, and his basic 
formulation around this was, is the policy based on data? Yeah. Will it help a lot? Not really. <laughs> and I wondered, uh, Dr. Selene Gounder, if that is also your perspective or if you think that the the guidance, which indicates that people should uh, wear masks in high transmission um, areas, indoors, um, if that's likely to make a difference at this point. Well, me um, and many other um, specialists in the area were, in fact, concerned when the CDC lifted its masking guidance back in May because we were still in a situation at that time and still are where there are many communities where there's still high levels of transmission, uh, where there are low vaccination rates. And there is no system for enforcing that it's only vaccinated people who go unmasked. So, you know, many of us had concerns about that policy to begin with. I think the reality is that people who were not vaccinated yet um, did not, did, they have not gotten vaccinated in the interim. And these are the same people who would rather not wear a mask. And so if there is not uh, a mandate, if it's not what everybody's doing, they are simply not going to mask and it's not going to encourage them to get vaccinated either. In the interim, what has happened is you've had the rise of the Delta variant, um, you know, which is more infectious, more transmissible, and also has some immune evading properties um, that make it concerning. Uh, in that setting, we have seen breakthrough infections uh, with the Delta variant among people who have been vaccinated. It's important to state that these infections have been very mild. People have had no symptoms or very mild symptoms. These folks are not ending up in the hospital, really sick and dying. However, there is evidence that these people with breakthrough infections, so infections despite vaccination, could transmit onto others. And our data for that is that they have levels of virus in their nose, uh, in their bloodstream, for example, that would indicate that they are infectious to other people. But we, we still don't have definitive, definitive evidence, definitive proof that they are transmitting to other people. And we don't know how much they would be contributing to community transmission. So it, it's hard to say does asking somebody who's been vaccinated, will that reduce community transmission? It's really hard to estimate that without some of these data. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like the circumstantial evidence, right, is that there are some places with very high vaccination rates that nonetheless have been able to sustain outbreaks, um, even though they have, you know, you would imagine that if people weren't able to transmit who were vaccinated, it would be very hard for the outbreak to keep going, right? Right. So we have evidence from a number of different um, industries where they do frequent testing. So, for example, the sports leagues where they've continued to do uh, weekly or a couple times a week testing, the television and film industry, where, as you can imagine, on set where actors are close together, they've continued testing. And we have seen, despite uh, people being vaccinated, that they have had breakthrough infections and they've had outbreaks that are very difficult to explain uh, unless you attribute them to people who were vaccinated having spread onward to others. So until we're able to quantify how much these folks are contributing, the, the more cautious uh, measure would be to recommend for now that vaccinated people uh, mask when they're indoors, at least until we have a bit more data. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gunner, stay with you for one more question. Um, the boost so, so you have a different perspective on boosters, right? The idea that maybe there'd be a third um, shot that people would take, which would provide enhanced protection uh, from the Delta variant. What, what's your take on how we should be thinking about 
the vaccination regimen that provides maximum protection? So I think it's really important that we, um, when we talk about boosters, talk about what we mean. I think the problem with the word boosters is in people's minds, that's like getting a yearly flu shot. And I don't think that's what we're talking about here. If you look at all the vaccines we administer, almost all the vaccines we administer require two, three, four doses. The only vaccine that we give that's a one dose vaccine is the yellow fever vaccine. And so a, a very sort of standard old school vaccine regimen is you give a dose at zero months, you know, day, uh, day one, two months later, you give another dose, and then six months later, you give another dose. And that's a very standard old school vaccination regimen. So the fact that we thought we could get away with one or two doses um, frankly, shows a bit of hubris on our part. Um, I, I think what we are seeing is that we may well need a third dose, but just like we give, as one example, three doses of the hepatitis B vaccine, you're then done. You don't get another hepatitis B shot every year. You're done after the three. We anticipate it could be something very similar uh, with COVID and not necessarily even for everyone. It may be specific subgroups, for example, very highly immunosuppressed people. And when I say immunosuppressed, I mean really immunosuppressed. So these are people who have had solid organ transplants, who are on immunosuppressive drugs so that they don't reject the organ transplant. These are people who have uh, severe autoimmune disease or cancer where they're, they're receiving highly immunosuppressive drugs. Uh, certain people with blood cancers, so very select group of people who may need um, third doses, and then possibly also elderly persons uh, over the age of 80. Um, those are the people who are most likely to need a third dose. And, and then it really depends on how uh, the virus also continues to evolve. Will we continue to see more immune evading variants like Delta, like Beta? Uh, that will really determine if we need a three dose regimen or not. Thank you. You know, uh, David Wallace-Wells, um, I see this sentiment bouncing around um, occasionally on Twitter, um, and we got a comment that uh, embodies it perfectly. Um, Tom writes, the unvaccinated present a risk to themselves and the community. Anyone who elects not to be vaccinated when the vaccine is made available to them should be denied medical care when they become infected. They made their choice. Let nature take its course. I, I personally find that cold and very difficult to, to stomach. But Philosophically, how do you see thinking about the responsibility that people have to protect their communities uh, and and the health of people around them uh, by getting vaccinated? Well, I, I think like you, I'm worried actually about heading into especially the fall and winter um, and seeing especially, you know, um, American liberals, proud American vaccinated liberals looking at um, the suffering and dying of people who chose to get um, chose not to get vaccinated and treating it as a kind of a self-inflicted wound you know i think it's important to keep in mind all of these illnesses are real illnesses all of these deaths are real deaths and it's likely that even with the dramatically reduced uh, mortality risk that we're facing there's going to be a fair amount of it um, in the coming months and that is you know human suffering that we should lament and you know and sort of mourn um, my, my own view is that, you know, about the question of individual responsibility um, is that the dynamics, the broader dynamics have changed enough that um, it allows us to see individual risk a lot more clearly um, than a year or so ago. A year or so ago, we had to worry about what 
an infection would mean to the person who is infected, but we'd also have to worry about what the sort of collateral damage of that infection would be to the to the community as a whole, um, because given that there were so many vulnerable people out there, any case um, was you know there was a, a real risk that any case would eventually lead its way back to someone who was old, someone who had a, a comorbidity, or someone who um, was sort of younger but but unlucky and and who suffered a really serious illness as a result. With the sort of mass vaccination of the elderly, um, those calculations for me shift a little bit and you can start to think a little more um, a little more narrowly about the you know the, the sort of individual risk calculus and people can you know as a result balance their own um, anxieties against the public benefit of being vaccinated. On the other hand, I don't want to you know come out and say it's okay to not get vaccinated um, you know, Every individual will be much better protected against the disease if they were vaccinated. The documented risks are incredibly low compared to the risks of, of, of disease and infection. And um, you know, I think the case is really quite clear, both at the individual and the social level, that more vaccination is better. I do think looking around the world that we Americans have suffered a little bit from, you know, sort of national narcissism in lamenting um, the low levels of vaccination that we've seen here. Um, when you compare our rates to other countries in the world that we often think of as sort of our, our competitors or our, um, our, our cohort, um, you know, much of Europe, the UK, Israel, um, we're doing a little bit worse than those countries. You know, we're at about, I think 49% of our population is vaccinated. The UK is at 53 or 54, for instance. Um, most of the countries are in that 90 to 95% range for, for senior vaccination. Um, so I think that there has been, you know, there is a significant culture war partisan dynamic at play in the American vaccination debate and is probably suppressing our uptake a bit. But I also think that a fair amount of the resistance and reluctance is um, the result of forces outside of partisan politics and even outside of the sort of disinformation campaigns that we've um, so worried about and has something more to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of 20 year olds look around and don't think that they're really all that much at risk. Um, and maybe a year, two years from now, five years from now, will have sort of um, gotten, those people will have gotten around to being vaccinated. But I'm not sure that we can expect in the next few months to really penetrate that that ceiling of say 60 to 65% of the population as a whole, 95% of the of the seniors, um, just given what we've seen in, in our sort of peer countries who are much less afflicted by the, the sort of culture war aspects of the vaccination debate than we are. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gounder, you know, to that point, one of the, a, a lot of public health officials um, are, are arguing for change, right? They're trying to get more people vaccinated. They're trying to, to change the the on the ground realities uh, of, of this disease in the United States. And I think one of the most difficult scenarios to actually account for going into the fall is exactly the one that, that David just laid out, which is essentially not that much changes. Um, what happens if we go into the fall with vaccination rates kind of not having moved that much, with um, masking not having changed that much? We just kind of have a, a, essentially what we have now um, going into the fall. What, what do you expect to see then? Well, I, I expect to see um, issues with school reopening. I expect some parents will ask for uh, hybrid or remote learning options. I expect some employees will say, I don't want to go back to work. It's not safe. Um, and so this will be really disruptive to the economy. And just like 
Dr. Fauci has been saying since the beginning of the pandemic, this is not public health versus the economy. You only reopen the economy through public health measures. And we have been um, very half-hearted in implementing those measures from the beginning, whether that was social distancing or masking or now vaccination. And you know, I, I liken it to pulling off a Band-Aid. We are not pulling off the Band-Aid. We're not doing these things with true commitment um, and, and uh, which would allow us to move on. And I think that's very frustrating to many of us because we're prolonging our pain. We're prolonging our pain uh, in the hospitals. We're pro prolonging our pain uh, with respect to the economy. I also think just going back to your caller's question, you know, I fully understand the frustration. Why is it, you know, we we are so privileged in this country that we have access to vaccines. I, you know, both my parents are immigrants. I have family members in India, for example, who have died from COVID, who have been hospitalized with COVID, who have not had access to vaccine. Much of the world is so envious of us. And, and so I fully understand the frustration, but at the same time, I think it's really important not to blame people for not having gotten vaccinated. You know, are we gonna start blaming somebody who had a heart attack because I don't know, maybe they smoked for some period of time earlier or they don't always eat so healthy? Are we gonna blame that kid who went skiing for their, their knee injury? Um, you know, I, I think we've all done things that were unsafe in our lifetime that were maybe not you know, so, so healthy. Um, and and I, I think we understand that people are not perfect. I think the other thing is behavior, health related behaviors are not individual behaviors. We function as social units. And we're seeing this with vaccination now where people are getting vaccinated or not based on what their family and friends and their communities are doing as much as they are on the basis of any kind of individual assessment of the data. It's really more of a social behavior. It's showing perhaps social allegiance, commonality um, with, with others like them. And so understanding that um, to the idea of blaming an individual when these are social behaviors really just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We're talking about the Delta variant and the resurgence of COVID cases with Dr. Celine Gounder, who you just heard, who's an infectious disease specialist at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, and David Walswells, deputy editor at New York Magazine. I want to add Catherine from Napa into the conversation. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Yeah, so I recently came down with a cold after having been vaccinated myself. And my, the first question for my brother was, oh, do you think it might be COVID? And I said, well, gee, I don't think so. But I don't know how I got a cold since I wear a mask all the time. So what are the symptoms that we should be watching out for? Dr. Gounder? So with breakthrough infections with COVID, um, I think one thing that um, really needs to be explained is that the immune system, immune response that you get with vac vaccination protects the lungs and the lower airway much more effectively than the nose and, and throat. And this is why the vaccines are highly effective in protecting against severe disease, because the severe disease is when you have involvement of the lungs. They're not as good at protecting from, you know, the runny nose and, and cough that you might have in the upper, the upper throat. Um, so just regular cough cold symptoms that you might have within the common cold, you could have with a breakthrough infection with COVID. And should she get tested, Dr. Gowdy? I, I would, yeah, I would suggest she get tested. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. One, 
I do think it's important to document if you've had COVID. We, there's a, still a lot we don't know about long COVID. And I think to have that information, if you did indeed have some sort of consequence at some point in the future, that would be helpful for your doctor in managing you down the line. I, I think secondly, um, the CDC is actively gathering data on breakthrough infections to better understand um, could you be transmitting onward to other people? Are there specific characteristics um, with respect to who's coming down with breakthrough infections that put them at higher risk for that? Um, and so I do think it's worthwhile to get tested both for yourself, but also um, for public health reasons. Yeah. David Wells-Wells, you know, te- we talked a lot about testing. Obviously, my own work at COVID Tracking Project, we talked a lot, a lot about testing. Um do you, is that seen as either a limit or a solution in the current uh, wave of Delta? My understanding is that, you know, uh, most epidemiologists are not worrying too much about the level of testing, but many have advocated that we do a lot more rapid testing, which can be more sensitive in measuring infectiousness. Um, and as a result can be a little bit more useful in terms of managing one's own behavior. It's not quite as effective in terms of measuring the the general spread of the disease. We're still compared to a lot of countries, especially in Europe, um, sort of far behind on using rapid testing, but I think it could be a tool that um, could help us in the near term because it does allow you to say, you know, take a test one day and know that that day you are not infectious and go out and go about your business um, relatively confidently um, rather than a PCR test, which may, you know, measure you as um, sick for a period of two weeks or more when in fact you're only truly infectious for a couple of those days. Um, I'd like to see the rapid testing be used more in a more widespread way, but I think we're well past the sort of bottleneck issues that we saw last spring and summer where um, the number of tests being conducted was a real, was a real challenge in, in controlling the disease. We're talking about the Delta variant and the resurgence of COVID cases with David Wallace-Wells of New York Magazine and Dr. Celine Gounder, NYU School of Medicine. We'll be back with more of your comments and questions after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, four police officers who were on the scene January 6th as insurrectionists breached the U.S. Capitol gave emotional testimony yesterday about the physical, verbal, and in some cases racist abuse they endured. We'll get your reaction to the hearings and talk about where the investigation goes from here. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Delta variant and the resurgence of COVID cases with David Wallace-Wells of New York Magazine and Dr. Celine Gounder at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. I uh, want to get to some of your comments and questions here. Um, Susan writes, uh, since you say that living with new COVID variants is now the new norm, uh, when do you see an end or a dramatic slowing of the virus ability to mutate with new variants? Five years, 10 years? Um, and keep that in your mind. And I want to go to the phones. Patrick in Oakland, who I think has a, a related question, we'll try and answer together. Patrick, welcome to the yeah, show. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Hi. Can you guys hear me okay? Yep. Okay, great. Um, yeah, it dovetails with that last question was with this, uh, the, the comment was we're taking a kind of a ripping Band-Aid approach and it's kind of slow. Um, does that give the virus more time to mutate and eventually or potentially, I guess, um, render vaccines useless? Like, is that a serious risk that we should be considering? And does that hasten kind of the need to do this and not just kind of muddle around? And then the follow-up is just about um, thinking about mandatory vaccine requirements um, or vaccine mandates. And there clearly seems to be some Supreme Court precedent for this in 1905 that I've been hearing about. So if it is going to be the end game, uh, I'd love to hear these two public health officials' thoughts on kind of where that end game could play out, given the current world we live in. That seems like an open shut case that, you know, individual rights are not absolute. So I know it's a bit of a more of a political question, but it's very relevant to the current world we find ourselves in. Sure. So just the the mutating of the vaccine, rendering vaccines useless, and also the eventual end game of mandatory vaccine requirements. Great. We'll, we'll do them in that order. Um, Dr. Gunder, do you want to talk about uh, immune evasiveness? I, as I understand it, Delta wasn't even necessarily the uh, of the of the variants of concern that we currently know wasn't even necessarily the one that people were most worried about. It seemed like the variants first identified in Brazil and South Africa seemed like they might even be um, tougher uh, uh, on our immune systems. Yeah, that's right. Um, the Beta variant, which first emerged in South Africa, and the gamma variant, which first emerged in Brazil, actually have greater immune evasiveness than Delta. But because Delta is so transmissible, so infectious, in a sense, it outcompeted in the race against uh, beta and gamma. And so Delta really has predominated now, has taken over in much of the world. Uh, its immune evasiveness properties are, are somewhat less than with um, beta and gamma. Now, I think it's important to understand that coronaviruses are a very different family of viruses than influenza viruses, for example. And influenza, um, the, the way its genetics are structured, um, in a sense, it has eight different segments of uh, uh, of coding of genetic material, just like kind of like we have different chromosomes, and that allows for much more dramatic genetic mutation than if you have a single strand of genetic material. And so, because of that, influenza can mutate much more quickly. Uh, it's why we end up needing seasonal, you know, yearly flu shots. That is not how coronaviruses mutate. And while they do mutate, we don't anticipate they will mutate so quickly um, that you would need seasonal shots. We think what will happen is um, sort of in this, we're now almost two years uh, into the pandemic, uh, in, in this initial period where the virus spilled over from animal hosts into human hosts, there's some adaptation of the virus to the human host, but that that will plateau. 
uh, and that over time you're not going to see the same rate of mutation that you had initially. So while we are seeing um, the emergence of variants right now, uh, we don't think that that will continue at the same pace. Now, you do make a very good point, though. If you do not control spread of the virus, if you are allowing the virus to transmit and replicate, with every time the virus replicates, it has an opportunity to mutate. And especially right now, while it's still adapting to the host, that means that you will have um, more variants emerge as long as the virus is spreading and mutating. Uh, so if you allow, if you don't really um, implement all of the measures you have at your disposal to fully suppress the virus now, um, you are prolonging the pain, you are increasing the risk of, of variants emerging. Yeah. Um, thank you for that, Dr. Gounder. Um, let's address the second half of that question, which was given all that we know about the emergence of these variants. Um, should we have vaccine mandates? And David Wallace Wells, uh, New York Magazine, why don't you, we could obviously have an entire show about vaccine mandates and the, the social and um, political complications thereof. But um, maybe you could give us the capsule version. Um, do we think vaccine mandates, say, at the employer level um, make sense and, and will be effective? Well, I would start from the baseline that we effectively do have vaccine mandates um, for many vaccines in this country that are essentially enforced through the public school system, that we make sure that our kids are protected from a variety of scary diseases, almost as a condition of their growing up in our society. It's not an unheard of or un-American impulse. Now, doing it very rapidly in an adult population, maybe in a decentralized way through um, professional organizations. That's a bit of a different proposition. Socially, we haven't done that kind of thing before. Um, but I look to, as a lot of people have, to the example in France where they instituted the requirement that you be vaccinated in order to get access to you know, a range of um, sort of services and organizations, you know, movie theaters, restaurants, that kind of thing. And there was a quite noticeable um, uptick in, in vaccine uptake um, in the immediate aftermath of that announcement. Um, in the US, I would imagine a similar suite of policies would have the same effect. That's not to say that we would get all the way to 100%, but there is a, a I think we, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think we have somewhat over attributed vaccine hesitancy to like entrenched partisan identity politics and have assumed that those people who haven't yet been vaccinated are deeply, deeply reluctant and resilient. And I think there's a bigger, a much bigger pool of unvaccinated people who are persuadable um, given the right set of circumstances and a vaccine mandate um, could, or, you know, versions of, of this, um, you know, instituted at lower levels could bring them, um, you know, to get a shot without feeling like too much of a, you know, a big government burden or an invasion of, of, of civil liberties or civil rights. Um, we'll, we, we'll see, I think we are beginning to see, um, you know, stronger and stronger um, pushes at the, you know, federal health workers at, at the local level here in New York. Um, there, there have been efforts to, to make sure that um, we're, you know, workers for the city and particular organizations are, um, are vaccinated. I think we're likely to see those efforts grow over the coming weeks and months, and probably vaccination levels will, will rise as well as a result. Right. And locally here, say, Cal, Cal State University system, you know, big, big, big um, uh, health systems and universities have been, have been going down this uh, road. I want to turn um, 
to a few different comments, which I'm going to co- try and combine together into one question for you, Dr. Gounder. Um, one is, uh, David writes, thoughts on extra shots. I had the single J&J shot in March. Should I get additional shots and can you mix vaccines? Um, Merrily writes, you know, when we got vaccinated, we knew that we were only 90 to 95 percent protected. Why are they calling this a breakthrough when it might just be that five or 10 percent that was uh, expected? That Hold on to that one as well. And finally, David writes, um, please report the infection rates by vaccine manufacturer so we can really understand um, the risk profile. So the question that, that really bubbles out of all of these kind of breakthrough infection cases is, do we have um, a stronger grasp on in-the-field performance of these uh, vaccine efficacy for the three different vaccines um, that, that most people have gotten? And um, and do we feel like J&J actually has a different profile than the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines uh, in that regard? Dr. Gounder? Yeah, so there is data that's actively being analyzed. Some of this coming out of the sports league, some from other um, settings where they're doing frequent testing. And, and those are outbreaks that are really important because they are doing frequent testing. They are able to pick up on breakthrough infections where people may have no or minimal symptoms after vaccination. And um, I mean, I was literally on a call about this yesterday. Uh, that data is not yet publicly available, um, but will be released soon. Um, with respect to the J&J, I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier on the show, which is that the only vaccine for which one dose is the standard is the yellow fever vaccine. And so, you know, frankly, I think the fact that we thought we could get away with one shot of the J&J is, is, is because it is such a good vaccine. What we're realizing now is that we may need to give two doses of J&J, just like, uh, you know, or two doses of vaccine that would include J&J just like we are with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. So it's not that the J&J vaccine is less good. It's that we need to optimize the dosing regimen um, a bit better here. And And what do we know about mixing and matching like the... Yes. So um, what we are saying, when we say mixing and matching, what we mean is using two different types of vaccines. So maybe you give J&J first, and then maybe you give Pfizer or Moderna second. Um, the scientific uh, term for that is heterologous prime boost, but mixing and matching, uh, we are seeing more potent responses with a mixing and matching approach. Whether your caller should get a a second dose, we are not recognizing that is something that is being actively um, assessed at the moment. Yeah. And of course, there's a bunch of vaccine equity questions about, you know, whether we should be using those vaccines um, here in the U.S. Or, or, or sending them abroad, right? Yeah, you know, are you going to achieve more in terms of preventing infections, hospitalizations, deaths by giving people a third dose? Uh, are you going to prevent emergence of variants by giving people a third dose? Or are you going to accomplish more by spreading limited vaccine supply to people who have not even had one dose. I, I would argue that the latter will, frankly, have a greater impact. Yeah. Um, we're getting a few different kind of comments and questions about canceling travel due to Delta. For example, Fred writes, I'm a healthy 70-year-old vaccinated man. I've been looking forward to a hiking trip in Europe in September. Should I cancel my trip due to the risks of getting a Delta variant breakthrough infection? Um, So let's uh, hold that one in our heads and also bring in Joyce from Palo Alto, who has a a slightly different question. Joyce, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, I'm really concerned about what the, from a public health perspective, the socially right thing to do. The particular context of my story, my son and now daughter-in-law had a Zoom wedding last December 31st, and they're planning a 150-person wedding in San Francisco that will be of our family from around the United States and abroad, assuming people can come in. Um, and they're signing contracts now for the middle of October. Uh what can you tell me about what the science that we, when we are limiting, we told all the relatives, because we do have some relatives who have not taken the vaccine, that they're not invited if they, um, I'm sorry, this is hard. They're not invited unless they get the vaccine. Yeah. But I'm concerned about causing an event that could become a, supposed to be a joyous event that could become a, a spreader. Um, they waited. Originally, we're going to get married and less. Anyway, you don't need those details, but, you know, they were hoping they could have a wedding where people didn't wear masks. And so I want to know, what is your advice or what does the science say and what do you think yeah. is, is the thing that should be done about creating an event like this? It is really hard, Joyce. I, I, I'm sorry to hear that. I know people who've been wanting to get married. It, it's It's really hard. There's so many different dynamics that are... At play right now, and it's really hard to know what the right thing to do is. D- Dr. Gounder, what um, uh, help can you provide for Joyce in Palo Alto? Gosh, I mean, first of all, I, I hear you. That's a really tough situation. And a wedding is supposed to be a celebration of life. <laughs> you know, so the last thing that you want is for your wedding to be associated with with people getting sick and, and perhaps worse. Um, you know, one way to have an event like this that is safe is an outdoor wedding. If you're able to have these kinds of events outdoors, you can really reduce the risk. Um, obviously, everybody should try to get vaccinated. And um, we now have home um, COVID tests that you can get. Um, the, these you can purchase online. There's an app that will basically, uh, there's somebody who will come on the app and observe you self-administer uh, the test. They'll help you read it. Um, those take about 15, 20 minutes to run, um, you know, so people could be self-testing on the day of the event, um, in addition to being vaccinated and, and doing this outside. I think there are ways to do this safely um, if everybody is willing to, to take those measures. Yeah. Um, good luck, Joyce. It seems very, very hard and wish you the best. Um, can we go to Gabriel in San Jose? Taking my phone call. Um, am I, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. We can hear you, Gabriel. Go ahead. Awesome. Awesome. I just want to say thanks for your program. I listen to it daily, and it's always so informative. Um, my question is, I'm very concerned about my, my baby boy, 18 months, uh, traveling to Texas. I just want to see what's your, what's your, um, what's your advice um, as far as the new Delta variant is concerned, uh, me and his mother are both vaccinated, um, but I'm concerned as far as my son's particular health and you know, coming back and, and possibly giving it to my loved ones. Yeah. Um, Dr. Gunder, what kids, particularly young kids and, and Delta, is the situation largely the same as with COVID where the risk for children was, was much, much lower than for older folks? Um, and, should they, and should people with kids be worried about travel right now? Yeah, you know, and with an 18-month-old, that's a little too young to really mask that child. Um, so you are going to be running some level of risk uh, while you're in transit, um, for sure. You're probably better able to control the risk while you're on the ground in Texas. But 
you know, yes, the risk is relatively lower in, in young children, but it is not zero. And we have seen very severe cases of COVID in, in young children. And we don't know what uh, the long-term consequences are going to be. We still don't, there's a lot we're still learning about long COVID. Um, so it, it's very hard to advise in a situation like this because we're kind of flying blind, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, um, I wanted to ask you, David Wallace-Wells, you've done a lot of uh, work on other big risks to, to human beings like climate change. How has the pandemic and all that you've seen play out on these sort of social and political factors changed the way that you've thought about risk in, in general right now? The main thing is I've, I, I've learned again a lesson I thought I'd learned with climate, which is that we're not very good at really assessing risk at an individual level or responding to it at a social level. Um, I think we're also really uncomfortable with, you know, living under uncertainty and making decisions based on imperfect knowledge. And so we sort of, we often pretend that we really know the answers to questions like a lot of the ones that um, our callers have been asking, um, rather than acknowledging that we really don't know. And for me, the, the clearest illustration of that was, you know, back in, um, in January, I was looking over the CDC, you know, collected all of these projections for what the next few weeks of the pandemic were going to look like in terms of case numbers and deaths. And um, I don't remember the exact number. I think it was that they had 27 um, different models that they aggregated on their site. And each model, you know, didn't just spit out a particular projection for what the pandemic would be like in three weeks time, but it also gave a huge range that was supposed to go all the way from what they call the sort of fifth percentile interval to the, to the 95th percentile interval. So you had this this huge you know, range of predictions that were essentially supposed to cover all possible outcomes in addition to making a more focused prediction. And three weeks later, um, only the, you know, the, true, the true course of the disease only fell in that 95th percent range for two of the 27 models that had been um, aggregated by the CDC. So these were the most trustworthy models projecting just three weeks out, which isn't that much time. And um, only two of them even included the eventual outcome as a possibility. Um, all the others um, made projections that were totally off course. You know, I think when we talk about a lot of these questions, we have to understand that this is still in some fundamental ways a mysterious disease. We know a lot of things we can do to blunt the impact, to, to blunt the trajectory. We know the vaccines work. And yet when we're looking We've at the particular... going to have to cut you off there. We've been talking about the Delta variant and the resurgence of COVID cases. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.